Think about uh, two sacraments of healing, and this is actually the way that they're organized in the prayer book, in the new prayer book. So you have uh, both the anointing with oil, which we call unction, and then we also have absolution. So one heals bodily infirmity, the other one heals the spiritual infirmities of sin. Okay? Then you think about uh, sacraments pertaining to vocations, and that would be marriage and ordination. And you got it, right? So you got seven. Um, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why this is so difficult for some of our seminarians to get, but, you know, there it is. <laughs> you got to memorize these, these seven because uh, it's, um, it's, it's so important to know what exactly are these sacraments. Now, this raises another kind of bit of inside baseball that I do want to cover, which is that you'll hear some Anglicans who will simply say, no, there are only two sacraments, only two, only two, only two, please. Let's not talk about it anymore. There are only two. And that seems to me uh, to be, uh, it's an interesting position. Uh, what they're really saying is that there are only two sacraments that are generally necessary for salvation, and if you hold that a sacrament is generally necessary for salvation, then you'll hold there are two sacraments. But if, on the other hand, you hold that there are two sacraments that generally, generally necessary for salvation, and then another five that are called sacraments that, um, that are states of life or other things like that, which is what the articles actually say, right, then you'll hold there are seven sacraments. And part of the tension was, in the early part of Anglicanism, when these definitions were being made, is that there were some who were advocating for two sacraments, and some, like Henry VIII, who were saying, no, there are seven sacraments, that's it, I have spoken, I'm the head of the church, that's it, right? So there's this deep tension going on. And uh, Anglicans are good at saying two things at the same time that seem to be opposed, and then kind of sorting it all out throughout history. But that's really where all this comes from. Um, there were some people when we were writing the catechism who said, don't even touch the other five. Like, and then there were some who said, hey, if the other five aren't in there, that's a problem for us. So there's a way that we speak about these in that way. Okay, so let's talk about ordination today. Um, I'm going to cover a lot in this that's not in the catechism, so you kind of need to just kind of hang in with me. But first we'll ask this question, what is ordination? Through prayer and the laying on of the bishop's hands, ordination consecrates, authorizes, and empowers persons called to serve Christ and his church in the ministry of word and sacrament. Okay, so this is just a base definition for all ordination. As Anglicans, we hold that there are threefold, that there's like the threefold orders of the church, um, and actually some will say fourfold orders of the church because they'll say bishops, priests, deacons, and laity, um, but it, holy orders actually has always contained just these three. Um, well, at least since like the first or second centuries, bishops, priests, and deacons. Okay, we'll talk about how, where that comes from. But in a base sense, ordination is the sacrament which includes prayer and the laying on of hands. And one of the things that, that is, uh, that's actually a bit of a reform in the new prayer book is that it goes back to the previous ordinals, and what it does is it invokes the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the work of whatever order it is. So the old or, the, in, in the you know, kind of 1970s liturgical reform ones, it was like this. It was the bishop laying hands on somebody and saying, um, praying to God, make him a priest, make him a deacon. We don't do that anymore. We say, we, we invoke the Holy Spirit over that person for, the, for this work, okay? So it's the prayer and laying, hand, laying on of the bishop's hands, and ordination consecrates, so that's the first word. What does consecrate mean? Made holy, right? Um, so uh, a, a person who is ordained is consecrated, okay? Now, that does not mean that they are holier than thou, because, gosh, if you know me, you know that's not true, okay? But what does it mean? It means set apart for, for a task, for a ministry. 
um, authorizes, so this is, this is wonderful too, um, no one is authorized to do the work of a priest in the church except for priests. So, like, this is a big thing during the, uh, during the, in the Reformation in England. One of the things that's always kind of coming up is, who's authorized to, to, uh, to lead divine worship? And the, the Church of England says emphatically, only ordained priests in the Church of England and deacons and bishops. Um, Puritan clergy were not recognized. Um, that's why they were called recusants. They could, they could be somewhere else. Roman Catholic clergy were not recognized as well, for that matter. Um, but it's authorized. So another way to do it is I don't have to call up the bishop every morning and say, hey, bishop, uh, I want to celebrate communion today. Can I do that? I don't have to do that. Why? He authorized me <laughs> to do it, right? He, he laid his hands on me, authorized me, and that's that. So I don't have to ask for permission to do those things as long as I'm within the guidelines, right? Um, so that's there. And empowers. Now, this word empowers has some really bad connotations today, but, but basically what it does is it, is it invokes the power of the Holy Spirit for this work. That's what it's really all about. Um, behind ordained ministry is not my personal gravitas. What's behind it? The gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit working, working in me. Okay? Just, just as much as it is in you, right? No Christian can do any good thing without the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me, I'll get to your question when I finish this out. Um, Note also that this ministry is specific uh, to uh, the ministry, to serving Christ and his church in the ministry of word and sacrament. So for Anglicans, ordained ministry has a specific purpose, and that is to administer word and sacrament. What this means is that ordained ministry has a great importance to the church, which is what? Where the word is faithfully preached and the sacraments faithfully administered. Um, and so, in a sense, we can say that, uh, that uh, the, the orders of the church are, and this is where the big debate comes in, in some way a part of what the church is. Now, how essential is that? Well, that question gets asked down the road. But I do want to say this morning that, that um, at the very bottom level of just understanding this is this, that ordained ministry in the Anglican sense is about being ordained to proclaim the Word of God and to administer the sacraments. And so, what, what should that also tell us? That there are a whole bunch of ministries that don't include that, and that is open to all the people of God. Does that make sense? So, like, this is one of the things I really hate, is when someone says, I feel called to ministry. And part of mine is like, part of what I say is like, well, I would hope so, you're baptized. <laughs> like, you darn well better, like, because <laughs> that's what we did way back when. Uh, some people are like, I feel called into the ministry. Well, I would hope so, right? Um, and this is the problem is in America and in, throughout the West, we have this really big problem of clericalism where it's like you can't really be a minister unless you're ordained in some sense. And we really push back on that. And, but, but the way to push back on it is actually kind of counterintuitive. The way to push back on it is actually being emphatically clear about what ordained ministry is and what it isn't. Is that helpful? Um, otherwise, you just kind of are like, well, how do I really be, how do, how do I get credentialed? How does all that work? Um, you know, and keep in mind, we live in, the, in this wonderful century where you can go on and pay a $25 fee online and be ordained, <laughs> okay? Um, what does that mean, right? Um, but I'll say more about that as we go on. Go ahead. 
Sure. Yeah. That's yeah. That's really important. Um, authorize. You know. In a lot of ways, it's a kind of credentialing, right? It's it's. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't go to a doctor that wasn't certified by a board, right? Now, maybe I might if I was into kind of like, hey, let's do some alternative treatments or something like that. But like, if I'm going in for surgery, I want a board-certified surgeon. Do you agree? Yes, okay, good. <laughs> We're on the same page. All right. Um, and, and I don't want anybody else. And if I'm a hospital, I'm not going to hire anybody else. Um, and in the same way, uh, you know, clergy go through, through a pretty immense process, right? I mean, in January, I'm going to go do canonical exams. I'm going to be examining... Uh, two young men about to graduate from seminary in all manner of theology, and I'm going to drill them down, and, and I'm going to beat the snot out of them, frankly, uh, because I enjoy it, right? <laughs> no, no, not because I enjoy it, but because, but because they need to be competent, right? And, and I need to also be able to tell the bishop they are competent, and they should be ordained um, on that line. Um, in so much of the uh, free church tradition in America, the idea is, you seem to have gifts, why don't you exercise them? Um, and you get a lot of breakdown of discipline because of that, because there's nothing you can do about it, right? Um, you know, somebody goes off the rails, what do you do about it? Well, there's, there's nothing you can. There's nothing you can do. Um, and I was actually having a beer with Father Matthew last week uh, on Friday, and, and we, we were talking about something, and we just said, thank God for bishops at one point, right? Because we just realized, like, Exercising this ministry without that authorization and also without the care of a bishop is really, really hard. And so I said, well, you know, we, we were just sharing how great it is to have somebody in authority over us, and that, that authorization is clearly there. So I want to make sure you know that. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, it didn't prevent them going off the rails. There were other reasons for that largely surrounding uh, the fact that, um, I mean, listen, every church has some form of governance, right? And then not, not a single one is perfect. And there are ways to undermine it over, the, over many years. And it's, it's, it's something that can be done. Um, and I think also just to recognize that the church is always in a state of um, needing reforms. And part of the way that you bring in reforms when there's been chaos is what? by having some form of authorization, some form of, um, of clearing what kind of ministry is going to go on, how, under what authority is it going to take place, what are the, what are the boundaries going to be, things like that. So to give you another, just another example piled on top of others is people will often, in fact, I got an email just last week, hey, my son's getting married in two weeks. Would you be able to do the wedding? And I said, I can't. Even if I wanted to, I can't. Well, Why? Because we have diocesan canons that say you can't do a wedding with less than 30 days' notice. Now, the bishop can dispense you from that, but I wasn't about to ask. Okay, do you see the point? So I just said, no, I can't. You know, um, people say, uh, like, want to rent this building to do a wedding. I don't know them, you know, whatever it is. They just want to rent it. And I say, no, because when this building was consecrated for the use of the parish, it was consecrated for only the rites of the prayer book, and that's it. 
So that's all we can do. Um, now, is that to say that other things might be wrong? No, that's not the point. It's to say that that's what's authorized. Does that make sense? So I hope that helps. Um, but, and that kind of discipline is actually very helpful if it's followed. And I think that's the other part is, so long as you don't succumb to chaos, uh, it, it will actually be very helpful. What grace does God give in ordination? In ordination, God confirms the gifts and calling of the candidates, conveys the gift of the Holy Spirit for the office and work of bishop, priest, or deacon, and sets them apart to act on behalf of the church and in the name of Christ. Okay, I love how this question is answered. There are some graces that you already see in those who are about to be ordained. Um, so one of the wonderful things that I've been able to do through these many years is, is walk young men through an ordination process. I'm able to say, hey, um, I've noticed in you certain gifts that you seem to be really dead set on exercising. Like, you seem to really enjoy, like, putting on the vestments, you know? You seem to, like, really, and, and that's not it, but it's part of it, right? You seem to really enjoy reading Scripture in church. You seem to really love, like, administering a chalice. Uh, you seem to have this incredible draw to pray for people. Like, that's, and that's gold, right? And you say, um, what happens in ordination is those gifts are confirmed. God confirms the gifts and callings of the candidates. Okay, that's the first part. But also conveys the gift of the Holy Spirit for the office and work of bishop, priest, or deacon. Okay, so I want to just share like a personal example here because uh, I was on the, uh, the committee which went to select our new bishop. And I have to say, at the end of all the process, I was severely deflated because I was like, not a single one of them is up to it. Then Ryan Reed was consecrated. And let me tell you, the work of the Holy Spirit in his life has been absolutely undeniable over these last few months because he's a new man. He does stuff that he didn't used to do. Um, and it's, it's astonishing. And he, he operates with a newfound authority. Well, why? Because when those hands were laid on him, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to him for this work. Okay? And I've seen this time and again, where you look at the guy before he was consecrated to bishop, and you look at him afterwards, and you're like, yeah, wow. <laughs> and so I, I should not be surprised by this anymore. You see the same thing with ordination to the priesthood. Uh, this happens over and over again. Um, and it's not to say, listen, it's not to say that, they're, uh, that they have... Now that they're no longer sinners, right? It's not to say they no longer have struggles and angers and all the rest and hang-ups and all that stuff, right? It's to say that the gifts are being poured out, okay? Um, and they're also set apart. And this does not mean that, um, that I'm not one of you, okay? It doesn't mean it at all. This is where we kind of, modern people have this really hard problem with saying like, so set apart means like special and disconnected from the people. Um, no, <laughs> let's step back, right? Um, listen, um, that wonderful stone font back there is really simply this. It's Cantera stone, okay? If there was another piece of Cantera stone, you'd look and you'd say, by material standards, they're the same thing. It's just that that's a baptismal font and the other thing is a, is a rock, <laughs> okay? Now, do they share properties? Absolutely. It's just we use one in that way, we use another one in another, right? Um, and I think that's, that's something that needs to be said is, you know, just because I'm a priest, I'm not better than you. I'm not better than you at all. Um, and in fact, the ministry that I have as one of you is made, um, is made uh, all the more apparent by that. Um, 
And so that's one of the things I think has to be said at ordinations. And in fact, when I preach at ordinations, and I've done this a few times, I just say, you know, this is, the guy being ordained here as a priest is just a man. That's all he is. Um, and we have to remember that. That's all he is. Okay. What are the three ordained ministries in the Anglican Church? The three orders are bishops, priests, and deacons. Okay. Now, I'm going to say a little bit about this. Why, why these three? I mean, it seems if you read the New Testament, you'll see all kinds of ministries. I mean, there are prophets, there are evangelists, um, you know, it, just endless things. Um, why these three? Well, it seems that over the course of the first few centuries, there's a sharpening of what is already there in Scripture. And at least when it comes to orders and ordained ministry, these three come, come out um, and, and are greatly clarified in the first few centuries. Um, and they are bishops, priests, and deacons. Um, all three orders are actually mentioned in Scripture, so we see this pretty repeatedly throughout the New Testament, and, um, and I'll say more about that as we go on. Uh, but, but Anglicanism is, is sort of unique in one sense, although there are a few other spots where this is the case, where we've maintained these threefold orders after the Reformation and maintained them uh, because they are the orders of the Catholic Church. Um, that's true in a few Lutheran bodies. So, uh, for instance, when I was in uh, Oxford, uh, another guy was kind of doing a sabbatical at Pusey House, and he was a Swedish Lutheran pastor. And Swedish Lutherans have bishops and deacons as well. Um, so he was, he was a Swedish Lutheran priest, and, uh, and, uh, and that was maintained. Um, so let's ask this work about what is the work of bishops? The work of bishops is to represent and serve Christ and the church as chief pastors, to lead in preaching and teaching the faith and in shepherding the faithful, to guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the church, and to bless and confirm and ordain, thus following in the tradition of the apostles. Okay, the word bishop actually comes from uh, the Greek word episkopos, um, in Greek, so if you read Greek at all, anybody? There are some of you, yeah, okay, good, I knew there would be some. <laughs> and you're reading along in the, in like, uh, well, the first, first letter to Timothy, you know, 1 Timothy 3. You'll see that he uses this word um, episkopos, um, which is often translated as overseer. If anyone desires the, desires the office of overseer, right? Um, and that's a good translation of what episkopos means, because epi means over, skopos means sight, so an overseer, right? Uh, that's very true. Uh, but the way that word comes down to us is, is basically episkopos, piskop, bishop, um, and that's how we get it. So if you read, uh, for instance, the King James Bible, it doesn't say overseer, it says bishop. Um, and I think the RSV is the same way. It, it maintains this use of this historic word that's tied to the Greek word. Um, the work of bishops is to represent and serve Christ and the church. So the first task of a bishop is to represent uh, Christ. Um, he is to be Christ to the people. Now, does this mean he's just, he's, he's Christ? Well, no. It means that he's to represent Christ to the people. Um, and he's also to represent the church. He stands to represent uh, the church to the world um, and as chief pastors. Um, that means that for Anglicans, there's no higher office than a bishop. We don't have popes. We, don't have, our, we have archbishops, but they're, they're, they're actually called uh, <laughs> prima inter pares. You know, they're, like, they're first among equals, in essence. Um, but they're chief pastors. Um, and this is actually a really interesting point because, um, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the live questions that's been 
and I don't want to bring up the sore subject of litigation, but uh, one of the big questions in, in these kinds of Episcopal Church lawsuits is, who's the authority here? And our uh, take on it is, and I think it's the right one is, there actually isn't, author there isn't an authority beyond the diocesan bishop. Now, clearly the diocesan bishop is held to a discipline that is a collegial discipline among other bishops, and we would not contest that. But there is no authority beyond the diocesan bishop. Now, the Episcopal Church said, no, we're the authority. You're just, you're just underlings. Like, that's how it is. Now, I'm probably mischaracterizing it, but, but that's essentially the question. And I think um, the clear teaching of Anglicanism is that there is no authority past that of a bishop, keeping in mind that bishops operate in collegiality that is consensual, okay? So this is important to keep in mind. Um, bishops operate as members of a college, right? So they work, and we don't, we've sort of forgotten what this is in our day and age of uh, widely diverse colleges, right? It's, there's no collegiality anymore because everybody's doing their own thing. I know I'm speaking your language. Um, and, and that's really sad, right? The, the original idea of a college was a group of, of instructors that are working together to further the mission of, of education. Bishops work in collegiality to further the mission of the church and they can collectively bring down the hammer on each other. Does that make sense? So if you, get, if you get removed from office by the other bishops, that means they no longer recognize you. And listen, it has happened in history that a bishop will peel off with other people, but they are, they are at that point, schismatic. Okay? They, they're becoming apostate at that point. Um, being in this college, in this collegial environment is really important, and this is, this is essential. Um, and actually, part of the reforms that were involved in the creation of the Anglican Church in North America was to uh, double down on this uh, atmosphere of collegiality. So the bishops work much more in collegiality now than they ever have, and that's a really good thing. So there we go, chief pastors. To lead in preaching and teaching the faith. Okay, so that's the first part. Or second part is they're to lead in preaching and teaching. Um, we call often uh, bishops the chief catechists. Um, they, uh, they, it is their job to lay down the faith, to teach it faithfully, um, and, uh, and in this to even correct false teaching. So uh, I've told you the story before. I, on on a, some occasions, our bishop has read a letter from a priest to his parish and has felt the need to correct that teaching publicly. And, and uh, what the priest has to do is they have to take the letter out that they got sent in the mail that week by certified mail, open it up in the pulpit, read the letter and say, I stand corrected. I shouldn't have said that. That was wrong, right? And you move on. Now, if you're, if you're, listen, that almost never happens, <laughs> but it, it has been known to happen, and I want you to know that. Um, to uh, also, and in shepherding the faithful, um, there is a major portion of a bishop's ministry that is a shepherding task. That's why the bishop carries, have you seen this? A shepherd's crook, it's a crozier. Um, and the bishop of a diocese, when he's in the diocese, will actually turn that so that it can grab hold of a neck here and there. Right? It's symbolic, right? But it's meant to be, what's, he, what's the shepherding task? Is it to push people out? No, it's to gather them back in, right? To keep, to keep the church together. And this is why we speak of the, of the bishops as, um, as guarding the faith and unity of the church. Okay? Um, I would also say that the primary way that a bishop shepherds the people of God is by shepherding the clergy. 
um, by offering pastoral care to the priests and deacons of the church. Um, and let me tell you, uh, I have always been thankful when I've needed that ministry and have had it. Um, because I don't have to rely on a board of you all <laughs> to offer pastoral care to me. <laughs> Although, I would say this, this parish is great at offering pastoral care to me, and it's not something I, you know, uh, take for granted. But I will say that having a bishop who can say, who can step in and say, you really need to do this, or you really need to think about this, or, you know, can I get you help in this regard, uh, has been a wonderful thing. To guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the church. Um, bishops have the almost sole prerogative um, to articulate with the other bishops in collegiality, again, the faith of the church, to guard the unity of the church, um, and also to guard the discipline of the church. Um, so this is important, too. Uh, parish clergy have a kind of um, temporary ability to exercise, for instance, Eucharistic discipline is a great example. Like, if someone's involved in scandalous sin and they're unrepentant, I have the ability to take them aside and say, listen, you know, you will not be receiving communion today. You're welcome to be here, but you will not be receiving. Um, and I've only had to do that on a few occasions. But within a week or two, I have to tell the bishop about it so that we can either join in that determination or he can tell me, back down, you jerk. <laughs> and that's it, right? So, so, and he will likely call that person and say, tell me what's going on. Um, but this is so that it's, it's all held in check. Um, and to bless, confirm, and ordain, thus following in the tradition of the apostles. So bishops bless. You can see, you know, we had the bishop here to consecrate this building. We had the bishop here to consecrate the font. They bless things all the time. Uh, to confirm, the bishop will be here uh, the Sunday after, first Sunday after Easter, to confirm, uh, to lay hands on people for the, for the um, increase of the Holy Spirit. That will be done, and also to ordain. Um, we do not follow what's often called in church understandings Presbyterian ordinations, right? So, like, we don't gather together as priests to make more priests. Right? What we do is we gather with our bishop. And, in fact, priestly ordinations are the only one where the priests gather around this, uh, the ordinance and lay hands on him um, with the bishop uh, because he's joining that order. Okay, what is the work of priests? The work of priests serving Christ under their bishops is to nurture congregations through the full ministry of the word preached and sacraments rightly administered and to pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. Okay, this is the work of priests. Uh, priests always serve, under, under Christ, serve Christ under their bishops. Okay? So uh, there is no such thing, if I can put it very simply, of a priest who doesn't have a bishop. Um, now, you might be ordained, but, but that's not the point. The work all happens under the authority of a bishop. So even what I'm doing right now happens because I'm authorized to do it by the bishop um, and, and, uh, and given that go-ahead. Um, to nurture congregations. Um, and how do we do that? Through the ministry of the word preached and sacraments rightly administered. Now, this is a really rough thing to just kind of have to lay out, but... I'm not a cruise ship captain. My job is not to make your journey comfortable. My job is not to entertain you. My job is not to, like, make sure that the shuffleboard is open when, it, when you want it to be, right? I'm using an analogy because it's easier to do it that way. But listen, like, my job is, my job is not to make sure you're happy. Um, my job is to nurture you in the faith and to lead you to salvation. 
Um, and, and there's only so much I can do along those lines. Um, and so sometimes I'll be sitting with somebody and they'll be like, can't you just help me? And I'll be like, there's very little I can do, you know? Uh, listen, at the end of the day, I, I, I come to you, I offer you, hopefully, good, faithful preaching. I hope that I offer you the body and blood of Christ for the, for the, for the nurture of your soul and grace, right? And I can do that. Um, I can hear your confession. I can reconcile you to God. Um, those are the first things that I can do for you. And to be blunt, a lot of people come and they want my help without all that. And it's like, I don't have much to offer you unless you're willing to take that for me. Does that make sense? Um, because the ministry which priests have is that of reconciling people to God and, and, and administering grace to them and, and preaching the gospel to them. Go ahead. No, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How's that different? Yeah. Uh, it's complicated. I'll put it that way. Um, it's not entirely clear how that works. Um, so I'll be, be humble and say that to start. Like, I think these... The actors in these times of Reformation in the church never quite understand the gravity of what they've done, and it can only be understood historically. So you understand that as, you know, a historian, you understand that, you know, often the people working at the time, they have their aims and they have their goals and they have their desires, but you never quite see what it is that actually happens until down the road. And you can't quite see it in perspective until later. Um, what I hope is happening <laughs> is this, that... Uh, and I've never, so I've never been, I've, o I've only been a part of, of, of diocese in that sense. So I've never, like, been in the position of leading a church out on my own. I've never done that. Um, I've always been a part of a diocese that's been a part of this. But it was at the understanding that, hey, we have these faithful bishops who've told us, we offer you the right-handed fellowship. We think you should do this. We think you should get out from under um, what is essentially ungodly authority that's going to mess you over down the road. And so we offer you that authority. We offer you that care. And, uh, you know, I will just say, GAFCON and, and what we're a part of in this global language and future movement is not, a, uh, is not a schismatic group. It's been castigated as such. But listen, in order to be a schismatic group, what do you have to do? You have to walk away from the faith and discipline and worship and sacraments of the church. And in fact, that's what we're doubling down on. Um, so I think that's really important to kind of make that clear. Now, history will bear out what effect that has, right? And history will judge it. I think down the road it, it will. Um, uh, but but that's, that's important to keep in mind. Um, at least, you know, I will say when, when all this happened, the thing that, because, that, uh, you know, you're going to have that concern. Are we, just, are we just choosing to walk apart? And I think the answer I gave was not at all. We're choosing to maintain the highest level of unity possible at this point in history um, and, and not see the whole thing break down. So, and the question is, how much authority do you have over that? How much personal gravitas do you have in that? I don't know. Um, the other thing I will say, too, is whatever weight we bear for that, we bear very little because it really is bishops who guard the unity of the church. And, uh, and if they fail to do so, then something has to be done about it. 
and they bear that responsibility. So I've always been you know, kind of happy I'm not a bishop because it's like, well, that's beyond me. It's above my pay grade. So I just leave it, leave it at that. Okay. Um, and I'm very thankful that I've been able to trust the bishops I've served. So I'll put that to you. <laughs> um, okay. So you get this. Through the full ministry of word, of the word preached and the sacraments rightly administered and to pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. I mean, that's what I do. I, I, I spend the, uh, the bulk of, of, uh, of my ministry um, proclaiming the word of God, uh, administering the sacraments, and pronouncing absolution and blessing. Um, and, and you might say, but you do a lot of other things too, like you run a vestry. It's like, yes, I do. But that's not what I was ordained for, right? Um, and and I, wanna, I think that's important to keep in mind. Okay, what is the work of de... Oh, one more word on priests. Where do we get the word priests? It's an interesting question. Um, you'll note that there are, the word priest is used all over the language in English. It's, it's really a word for anyone that does holy things within, uh, within a religious context, Right? Anyone who offers sacrifice, anyone who prays prayers, um, priest is a word that we use in that way. We use it because that's the New Testament word for elder that now is used priest, okay? So there are actually two words that get translated as priest in the New Testament. Um, in most modern translations, the word that we get priest from, which is presbyteros, right, uh, is, uh, is the Greek word for elder or or it'll often be translated bearded one in the East. It's kind of a, it's, it's just a word that means uh, someone who is, uh, who is, who exercises authority over others, right? Who has, who has uh, the, the prerogative of eldership, okay? Um, that gets translated presbyter, prester, pressed, priest, priest. See, you're getting close, right? I feel like I'm at my big fat Greek wedding. Um, but, but it's essentially that, right? Uh, so, um, there's another word in, um, in Greek, which is hieros, um, which essentially means a hierarch, right? And that's the word that's used for the Old Testament priesthood in the New Testament and in the Septuagint. Okay, so you've got these two words working back and forth. Um, some have tried to separate the meaning of those two words and say one is one and the other one's the other, but actually pretty early on in the church's history, they get conflated because it's understood that um, that the New Testament presbyter has functions that seem very similar to the Old Testament priest, right? Like offering sacrifice on an altar, right? It's a different kind of sacrifice. It's not bloody, but it's a different kind of sacrifice, okay? Um, praying, intercession for the people, absolving sins, like all those things are active in that. So there's a conflation that takes place. Now, many people will say that conflation never should have happened. Let's extract it. Let's, not, let's make sure that doesn't happen. There are a lot of Anglicans that do that. Um, I think what we really have to say about this is that um, whatever the priesthood in the, in the church is, it's some combination of the ministry of an elder in the church who exercises authority in that sense, even though, listen, I was ordained a priest at 25, so I had no, no, uh, no illusions about being an elder. I just sort of thought, like, I'm ordained to preach the gospel and, or, and administer the sacraments. That's what I do. I can do that. I'm authorized to do that. And, and it's been a kind of ongoing thing because, you know, I just turned 40. And I st I'm still a young priest, right? So I still have this kind of thing going on. But um, I think it's essential that we just sort of say, no, all of that is, is somewhat included in what ultimately comes out in the wash of history is that we have these kind of dual functions. Okay, I'm going to wrap up with this last question and then answer questions if you have any at all. What is the work of deacons? The work of deacons serving Christ under their bishops 
is to assist priests in public worship, instruct both young and old in the catechism, and care for those in need. All right. Um, all right. In the New Testament, you have this wonderful word, diakonos, which simply means servant. Um, it is different from the Greek word for slave or, or a more enslaved servant, which is doulos. A diakonos is someone who willingly serves, who's under no compulsion to serve, but serves anyway. Um, they are a servant. Um, and this is, it's clear from what happens in the Acts of the Apostles when the first seven deacons are ordained that their, that their role is to serve the tables. Um, what's going on here? Um, the apostles basically say, you know, listen, we were, we were set apart to, to preach the word, and we've been doing a lot of table service. <laughs> because what's happening is they have these big meals. This is what the church used to be like. It was like just giant potlucks, at which the apostles would serve, and at some point there would be something Eucharistic and blessing wine and, wine and bread, and they would distribute that. And you had all of these people eating and, and just this incredible feast going on. Uh, that was the church. That was what it was like, um, to put it really simple. And there were a lot of hymns and things like that as well. But it, they're like giant love feasts, okay? That's what, that's what the ancient church's worship is like, especially in the New Testament. Okay, so having said that, what's going on in the Acts of the Apostles? There are some Greeks who start to complain that their people are not getting uh, a fair and equitable distribution of food. They say, our widows are being forgotten, we're not getting the right amount of food, uh, you know, we're getting neglected in these, in these, in these feasts. Uh, the, the wealthy are being privileged, is one way to put it, right? So what do the apostles do? They take seven Hellenist Jews, probably, and they ordain them, we're almost certain they were Jews, um, but they're Hellenists too, because they all have Hellenist names, okay? And they say, we're going to set you apart to be deacons, to be servants of the church. And they're the ones that serve the table, and it separates, and it makes this, it, it essentially solves the problem, okay? So they're, they're tasked with distributing, and deacons from forever since have been responsible for caring for orphans and widows and the poor and the neglected, et cetera, et cetera, and down the line. Okay, you got that? See that? That is why, in fact, deacons still today serve a liturgical role as well as a, as well as a role in the world. Because as the liturgy becomes more a distinct thing from these uh, love feasts and from these offerings to the poor, uh, they maintain a role in each, in each thing, right? So, uh, one of my favorite saints is, uh, is, uh, is Lawrence, who was a deacon in the third century in Rome. And uh, he was asked by the Roman magistrate, you know, show us the riches of the church, because as deacon, he was responsible for what? The communion vessels of the church, specifically the chalices of the church. And if you're a real history buff, one of the things that a grail, a holy grail people think of is that Lawrence was probably the keeper of the grail. That's my point. Um, that's another story altogether. Uh, in fact, during a time of persecution, it said that he shipped it off to his parents in Seville because he was, he was Spanish as well. Uh, I'm bunny trailing. I love this stuff, but there it is. Uh, but he was asked, you know, show us the riches of the church, and what did he do? He said, meet me in this neighborhood at, you know, 10 o'clock tomorrow, and I'll show you the riches of the church. Great. So they meet up, and he gathers the poor and the homeless of the city together, and he's like, look, the riches of the church. Now, guarding the, the metalware and guarding the poor are actually not distinct activities. They're the same activity. Do you see? Because, because it is uh, that 
the deacon understands that the means by which they serve Christ is in the poor and in the liturgy. That's where the riches are found. Okay? Um, what I will say is this. Uh, throughout history, the, the role of the diaconate has been disparaged over and over and over again. It's been sort of forgotten. And, uh, and it, it has for a long time just been sort of like a stepping stone to ordination of the priesthood. And uh, that's not great, uh, although all priests were first ordained a deacon first, usually. Um, usually. Uh, and, and it's been seen as needed. Um, but I would hope that at some point down the road we would have permanent deacons in this parish who are responsible for what? Basically upholding the riches of our witness to the poor, to widows, to orphans, to, um, and also in the sacrament as well. So that's a big part of it. The deacon also, because remember, um, ordained ministry in Anglicanism is about word and sacrament. They not only serve like the chalice, but they also uh, serve a teaching role, and they proclaim the gospel through catechesis. Now, this is actually an innovation in the new prayer book and in the, in, in the catechism, uh, but what we want to say is that deacons have a role of teaching, and that teaching is in terms of, of, uh, of instructing the uninitiated in the Christian faith. Um, which they have a special privilege of being able to do because hopefully they're out there working with the poor. Um, I had a wonderful deacon, uh, well, he became a deacon after I left the parish, but this guy named Jeff, I actually, I actually baptized him uh, when he was a you know, nearly 40-year-old man. And uh, he, the first day I met him, he said, you know, I, I don't know anything about Christianity or what this little thing's about. And uh, he went through this incredible conversion and he was baptized on the Easter Vigil with tears streaming from his, from his face. And shortly thereafter, he said, you know, I, I think I might be called to be a deacon. And I said, Jeff, I've seen those gifts in you from day one. <laughs> because one day I showed up at the, at the parish kitchen, and he had, he had stacks and stacks of bread and bags and peanut butter and jelly. And he, I said, Jeff, what are you doing? He's like, I'm making sandwiches. You want to help me? And I said, sure. And I helped him for a little while. And, and, and I, I said, what are these for? And he said, oh, I'm going to take them out to the homeless living under the bridges. I mean, that's a deacon, right? And he's, so this is a guy who every weekend on Saturdays, he takes sandwiches out to the poor, takes coffee out to the poor, and on Sundays, he serves the chalice. Do you see how those are not distinct activities? They're the same. He's offering uh, the, the, the hope of the gospel to the poor in each case. We're the poor. We really are. Um, now, are we poor? In the, no, not everyone here is poor in the sense of like riches and, and wealth. But we are definitely the poor. We're the poor of which Mary speaks in the Magnificat, because um, because we, we don't have we don't have the riches of God apart from grace. Um, so I want to want to hold that up to you. Um, one last thing to say about voca- about vocations and calling, and, and I know there are probably a number of other questions that have been unanswered in this time, and you can hold on to it till next week, or because that's our last catechesis session of this of this fall. Um, but what I want to say is something about how. Uh, everyone should be discerning, everyone in the church should be discerning what God is calling them uh, to do and be within the church, what ministry he's calling you to. How do you discern that? Well, the first way is get in touch with your desires. How do you do that? <laughs> Read the scriptures and pray hard and, and try to understand what your desires are. Now, many of you are, are doing things like preparing for life as an academic, and that's great. Uh, many of you are running small businesses and things like that, and you've experienced how your desires drive you in that work. They, they lead you to exercise it. Many of you are firmly in your vocations and callings, and many of you have retired. 
but, but all of us still have to follow our desires to that place. Well, why is that? Well, God doesn't want us to sort of follow his, his will grudgingly, right? Okay, I guess I'll do that. No, he didn't want that. <laughs> he, wants our, he wants our whole will and our heart involved in it. So he, he works to build desires in us for his will. Secondly, um, pay attention to the opportunities that abound around you to start to serve in certain ways, to start to work in certain ways, to start to uh, exercise ministry in certain ways. Uh, be open to the opportunities that are presented to you. Thirdly, be very attentive to your abilities and, um, and serve um, uh, seeking to exercise the God-given abilities and talents that he's given you um, and not to try to serve in some other way that is unnatural to you, right? I think a lot of Christians get hung up because they feel like, you know, I hate being surrounded by lots of little children, and yet I have been called by the nursery director to serve in the nursery, right? I hate it. I don't want to do it. Listen, if anybody's ever talked to me like about that, I just say, well, then quit, right? Because, listen, you're needed, but you're not needed that badly, right? Um, we, and, and we've mirrored this at Christ, we've really imaged this at Christ Church, and I've got a break, but um, it's this. I first want you to discern who you are and then think about what. Um, we're not good about this in the church. First we think about what the needs are, and then we think about who might fill them. It's the wrong way to think about it. We need to think about who first, then what. Um, and, uh, and, and we'll be fine. And that's, and that's something that everyone in the church needs to be discerning and needs to be thinking about and needs to be praying about. There's an opportunity to do that next week, so not this week, but next week, because it's the Advent season Ember Days, and Ember Days are days that are set apart in the church. It'll be next week, not this coming week, but next week, uh, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday of that week, days of fasting set apart for the discernment of vocations and praying for vocations, and so I want to encourage you in that uh, for, for next week. Thanks a lot. We'll continue next week.